Hey Future Medics, I'm Josh V and today's episode is the second part to the interview that we posted last week. Um, so this interview we were interviewing Mrs. Jenny Muscatel and she is a CHD parent and um and her daughter has gone through eight open heart surgeries and she's kind of just been sharing her daughter's story, her how she has been able to support her daughter, how different do- different ways that doctors have been able to support her daughter throughout this process and kind of just just her enti- her daughter's like entire journey. So make sure you listen to the first part of the episode which we posted 3 weeks ago just to get the full extent of her story cuz it really is a a really beautiful story to listen to. Um, and yeah, so other than that, just make sure you subscribe to our podcast on all platforms and then follow our Instagram, which is at medics on the mic. Um, and with that out of the, out of the way, let's get on with the interview. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I feel like we talked a lot about medical now and your daughter's history, so I kind of want to move more into humanities of it so um I just want to know like how did this whole process affect you your family's mental health if your daughter had any siblings um how did that affect their mental health how did it affect your daughter's mental health so the thing about um chronic medical conditions is you know I would say there's pros and cons I mean you have to you know, we all live from our life experiences, right? So whatever we go through, whatever traumas we face, whatever um, things we grow and learn from, we take the good and the bad and we push through and we we pick up our pieces and we learn from that. And so, you know, as a family, your life gets turned upside down when you're going through one of these events. You're somewhat isolated because you're far away from home. Usually, you know, we always had to travel hours to get to a specialty hospital. They're not necessarily things that can be taken care of in a local setting. And um, you don't have a certainty. One of the things I think in human nature we rely on is certainty. You know, we like to know that we can count on you know, getting to and from work, to and from school, knowing we're going to have a place to sleep. Like there's certainties we count on, but when you're put in that situation, all your certainties are out the window. And so you're naturally filled with a ton of anxiety and you're making decisions underneath that huge amount of anxiety, but it goes back to, but you don't have a choice. And so you have to just you, you pick up and you move forward and you do the best you can with the tools that you have. Um, you know, there are with any traumatic situation, there's, I think for me, and it might be different, it's different for everybody, but for me, I wouldn't feel the grief of it or the trauma of it until long after, because you're in go mode for me, you know, I'm on autopilot, I'm pushing through, I'm going to hold all the balls in the air and do whatever I can on no sleep at all (laughs) to make sure that my daughter gets everything that she needs. Mm -hmm. But the minute that all of the dust settles and you get back to normal life, I would find, oh, wow. Did we back on it? Yeah. Yes. Did we really go through all that? Did all of that really happen? And, Mm -hmm. and I think when you talk to a lot of CHD parents, what you find is, 
We get up in the night a million and one times to check on our babies. I think all moms do that, but we have a tendency to really not sleep and we get up a lot. We check, we look for, are they breathing? You know, how's you're, you're checking details and clues all the time because the thing about CHD is, or the, the kind that like my daughter has is it's not a curable thing. You know, surgery doesn't mean it's all fixed. It's all better. There's always something more coming down the pipe. What we get is snippets of time. We get, all right, we're good for another seven years. We should be okay. And then we take the joy that we have and we cherish and try to live the best life that we can for the periods of time that we're given until we face another hurdle. Wow. Yeah. I'm so proud of your whole family. You guys really stuck. Oh, thank you. The whole thing. Yeah. Um, I, so I remember in the beginning, you told us that, um, you didn't know that your daughter had like, had like the CHD and it was really unexpected. Right. So after you found out, like what steps did your, did your family take to like prepare for? I don't think we actually had for us, we didn't really have a preparation process. I know for some parents that I speak with a lot um, that maybe they found out during utero. So they have a little bit more time to plan for, you know, okay, we can search out the best doctor. We can reposition where we live even to be closer to a hospital. Those are some of the steps that I think a lot of parents take. We didn't have that option. There was no preparation. It was, we found out you're admitted to the hospital. You're in an, you're, you're in an ambulance ride down to the specialty hospital. You're having surgery in two days. And so for us initially, we couldn't plan later on um, when she would have other procedures that we knew about, we prepared so many ways. Um, I actually, you know, there's just different stages of the game required different preparation because faith as a toddler needed different support going into the hospital than faith as a young adult, you know? And so when she was little, I actually wrote a book um, that's called Nellie and Nellie's um, Hospital Adventures. And it's all about a game that we used to play with her when she was little and going into the hospital to to face all these scary procedures that would allow her to feel like she had more of a sense of control over what was going on. And so what we would do, and it worked so beautifully, was we took candy, little packets of candy, and it didn't matter if she was like NPO, which means nothing by mouth, because often you can't have anything before testing or procedures or anything like that. But we would get little packets of M&Ms, huge bags of little packets, And the doctors and nurses would not know that this is what she was up to. They had no idea. We kept it that way because we didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings if they didn't earn candy. (laughs) We weren't out to make any days bad or anything like that. We just wanted Faith to feel like she had a sense over what was going on. And so we would tell her ahead of time, okay, you know, this is what pre-op day looks like. You're going to have x-ray. You're going to have, um, you know, blood work, you're going to possibly have an MRI, you're going, you know, there's all this pre-test stuff that you have to do. And so we would tell her, each person you meet, if you think they did a good job, just like when you get done doing a good job, they give you a sticker. If you think they did a good job, you tell them they did a good job and give them a bag of candy. So the whole time she was less focused on what was going on with her. And she was more focused on 
I'm going to decide if these guys did a good job for me or not. (laughs) So (laughs) what that did for her was it gave her a measurement that allowed her to be part of the process and have her own expectations. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, if I had left it up to four-year-old Faith, can the lady who takes your blood have candy? She would have said, absolutely not. I hate the lady who takes my blood. (laughs) But in talking with her, and yes, even at four years old, it helped her. I would say to her, okay, but is it fair? Because you know, some people are good at taking blood and some people aren't so good. So how, how do you think we should decide if they did a good job or not? And she would she would say, and so she came up with this four-year-old faith came up with, okay, well, if they get it on the first try, I'll give them candy. And then we talk about, well, what if they don't get it on the first try? And she would say, and I'd say, because sometimes people make mistakes and she'd say, okay, if they don't get it on the first try, but they ask for help from someone else on the second try, they get candy. And so <laughs> These people at Boston, they were pros. They never missed. <laughs> so for her, that got her through the blood draw so that she could do those sort of things. So we did a lot when she got older, a lot of preparation just to get through the process. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's so beautiful. I love it. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> um, also, I mean, I feel like you kind of talked about how you didn't really have enough time to plan. So mm-hmm. you did have that time. How did you kind of have to adjust your life in, I mean, in any aspect, not just in terms of the time you have to take back and forth, but maybe other aspects of your life, like your job or your daughter's um, schooling, all that? One thing that um, was actually really hard for me and I had to get over really quick was I have always been an independent kind of gal. <laughs> So anyways, I, I didn't, I'm a caretaker. And so it's hard for me to accept help from other people. But when you're in that situation, you just kind of have to get over it and accept help and be grateful for that help. And so, you know, I was so fortunate to be in a job that I had a lot of time off saved up. And so I had time off while I was doing that. Our whole family would would go with me. This was pre-COVID. It was different after COVID. And we had to kind of adjust that a little bit because not as many people were um, allowed in the hospital mm-hmm. at once. Usually it was just two at bedside. And so um, that was harder because we did lose our support network that really helped us function through a lot of these things in a way. So it, it was a little harder to get through, but we figured it out. Um, but you know, there were a lot of different things out there. Like they had leave banks at my work. So when I ran out of time, people could donate their time and people were so gracious. Yes. I know they were so sweet and willing to, to do that. And, you know, if we had time in advance, we'd plan ahead. We, and we, we always knew like, okay, you know, we have to make sure we have our deductible in the bank. If anything ever goes wrong, we have to make sure we have a plan for a hotel, Um, As years went on, we found there were more resources. They weren't there in the beginning years, but as years went on, more resources became available. And the hospitals have child life specialists and social workers who know the resources that are available in their area. And so connecting with with those folks is always a great way to see what's out there. Through a lot of 
like the procedures that your daughter was going through she was like very young right how did how do you think like she processed it at like such a young age to be honest you know I felt like here's this poor baby who's in a sense, suffering abuse because she doesn't know the difference. All she knows is that people are coming at her and it hurts when they do. And they've cut her chest and they've, you know, she doesn't know any of that. She's just this small thing. And all she knows is people are coming near and it hurts. And, you know, they're poking me with needles and they're, but she doesn't even have words to attach to it, you know? And so what I would see was she would really only accept me. It was me who she felt safe with. It was me who she'd let come pick her up. But if anybody else was coming, she would cry and she would scream. And so that was really hard because how you can't explain to an infant or a young, young baby what's going on. You can only console and comfort them yeah. and recognize and pick up on what helps. And so this may seem a little bit I don't know, weird, but there's little things that even in those worst of circumstances that you can find that help. So usually babies have IVs in their arms or their legs, and they're usually taped to a board. Well, when, well, they call them a board, it's like a foam thing, but anyways, they come and they can see everything going on. Well, I remember the first time Faith had to get an IV in her head because all of her other veins were kind of blown and used up. And I was so freaked out. I was like, oh my gosh, they're putting this in her head. Like this can't be good. Like, I don't like this, but I will tell you, it ended up being my favorite IV placement when she was a baby because she didn't notice it. Once it was in, it sat up there. She had no idea. I could face her the other way. She wouldn't see when people were coming to put medication in it. And it allowed her to just be more calm. And so what seemed like this horrible thing actually ended up being a better thing. And so even in those moments, you, you can if you pay attention to the details, you can find little things that help. When she got older, I would say she, she'd be on her way. Like if there wasn't a high school process, uh, not high school, if there wasn't a hospital process going on, she'd be like, I'm, I'm living life. I'm playing. I'm doing what every kid does. Like there was no like past whatever about it. She just was forward and onward. But when it would come time for, oh, we have to go back to the hospital, she would hear the doctor say, well, this probably means surgery. Then she'd start to have anxiety. And then that would be, can I come sleep in your bed? And, you know, um, just being really nervous, always trying to kind of listen, what's going on? Am I going to miss anything? Is there anything, you know, kids are smart. They pick up on everything. And so as she got older, um, say middle school, it was all about talking through everything. I remember having just conversations at length night after night to help her through what to, what was coming, but it was always when things were coming. So yeah. I think um, that's really ad admirable on her side because yeah. I mean, being able to kind of separate yourself from those surgeries and those experiences and just being able to be like, okay, I'm just going to live life even amongst that is really hard. And mm -hmm. that's amazing that she was able to do that. And I also feel like based on the stories that you're telling, like, although this experience was terrible, um, you guys developed like a great connection through it because it helped 
she needed some dependence on you and then you guys kind of developed a better connection like she's coming to you every night or um mm -hmm. you guys have these little games together and that's really that's really beautiful I love that as a family oh thank you <laughs> um and also now that she's older does she still have to go through like all of these surgeries like as often or is it like well, so she has um, valve replacements right now, which she actually just had another valve replacement in the fall of 20. I've lost track of time since 2020. <laughs> um, last, not this fall, but the fall before. So yeah. 2021, um, she had a valve replacement, um, but we were very fortunate in some ways. In some ways it was yeah. probably the worst experience we've had yet. Um, but we were also very fortunate because they did not have to crack her chest this time. Mm -hmm. They put that valve in through the leg, like we were talking about earlier. And so it was still complicated. And the position that she had her valve in because they did it in the tricuspid position, they haven't really done that. So I think she was the 13th person to have that done at that hospital. And so you know, her doctor was like, well, you know, you told me you wanted to go ahead with this. I was really surprised, but you were right. You know? And I'm like, I'm like, okay, but normally we're like, nobody's ever really done this before. I'm like, this time it's like, well, 13 people have done it before. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, well, I wish we had more like a hundred. It's like, well, we needed well, it. It's better than like all the other times, right? <laughs> she, when she um, had her last valves put in through the chest, her surgeon said, we're hoping that by the time you need this replaced, they're going to be able to do it in the cath lab. And so when that time came and they were able to do that one, we were very relieved, but she refers to the cardiologist who put it in as like, you're the myth, the man, the legend, because... <laughs> <laughs> And then throughout all of these procedures, has it been like consistently the same surgeon or have like, have they like changed throughout each procedure? So when she was a baby, she did have a separate team of surgeons. And so, the, and they worked in pairs. There was uh, two of them. And then when she got to second grade, she's had her, her, ex he's world renowned, you know, he's been, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she's had him ever since. But. Yeah. Um, and then like, cause with like, like switching from her, her surgeon from when she was younger to like now, how did like information get like transferred? Well, we were really lucky in that we maintained the same cardiologist. And so okay. we have teams. And so our, her cardiologist until just recently, he retired. That was heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> but been with us since the beginning we keep in touch though but her mm -hmm. cardiologist had been with her since she was a baby and um he is here with us in Maine and then her care is referred to Boston and so her specialty hospital she has a cardiologist there as well actually two of them mm -hmm. because the way it's broken up there is everything is categorized. You have your imaging cardiologist, you have your cath lab cardiologist, you have your EP, you know, yeah. like, yeah, cardio. So it's all, yeah. yeah. Did your daughter, like, um, during the times, even when, even not during surgery, the time she was fine, were there things that she had to restrict herself on or even now she has to restrict herself on? Yes. You know, she was never really able to um, do a lot physically. Um, 
you wouldn't know it. The thing is, the CHD is a very invisible illness. And unless you see the scar, you can't tell that that person's sick. And so, um, you know, she could, when she was little, I, you know, she couldn't really do much at all. And I would have to lug her around most of the grocery store, put her in the car, even when she was like four or five, because she couldn't walk the grocery store. And her face was so blue that people would often come up to me. I was a young mom and people would come up to me and say, you need to put some sunscreen on that kid. And I'm like, she's not sunburned <laughs> blue, but I made these little cards that I handed out to people because I didn't want to keep explaining that in front of her as a young child. I didn't want her to just constantly hear like, oh, this is why this, and this is why that, because I just wanted her to have some normalcy. And so I made these little cards that said, this is why, you know, this or this or this, it just had a little summary. And so when people would say stuff to me, I just hand it to them. Oh Oh my God. (laughs) Now that we've learned a lot about like, kind of like how it affected your mental health, um, we kind of want to know more about how like the doctor kind of affected your experience. So could you tell us maybe like your worst doctor experience and then your best doctor experience? (laughs) Sure. Um, So you want me to start with the worst? (laughs) Yeah, a a good note. I'll leave them nameless, of course. Um, So when Faith was actually born and first diagnosed, we did have an ultrasound. And granted, the ultrasound was not that... um, they're not like they are now. You couldn't look at an ultrasound picture and see a baby's profile. You know, you could see the basics. But after diagnosis, the um, doctors looked at the old records and they're like, oh, look, you can see her heart is hypoplastic. Mm-hmm. And so I had reconnected with the first doctor who missed the diagnosis and said, Hey, you know, kind of like, a, like a learning experience, you know, I, I just want you to know that she was indeed sick and she was very sick. And, you know, this, this ultrasound showed this and, you know, take a look at it. <laughs> so it doesn't yeah. happen again, kind of thing. Yeah. And he's like, I don't really get why you're telling me this. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Well, I'm thinking that if you have somebody else come in, you know, yeah. that you would want to know. And he's like, Are you unhappy with me? Are you mad at me? And I'm like, It's really not about you. <laughs> Just, you know, so that was probably one of my worst encounters because I think that doctors, you know, in general, they're trying to, they they go into the profession because they want to help people and they're not perfect and they're not going to get it right. 100% of the time, you know, we are all human and we all make mistakes and we do the best that we can. And so we have to have grace for our medical, for our medical professionals wholeheartedly. Um, but they also have a responsibility to hear and to listen. And so That's always been my harder experience is if somebody's really closed off to feedback because feedback, I'm again, scientific brain, feedback is what tells you how things are going. Feedback is how you learn. It's how you grow. And mm-hmm. so that was probably one of my worst experiences. No, and that's, that's important. Cause I, I feel like maybe, um, 
I mean, I wouldn't know, but I feel like when you're when you're as a doctor, you've gone through like years and years of med school and everything. So some might develop this kind of like superiority complex where they're like, I know more than, you know, a patient or their parents. So I don't need to take advice. But I think understanding that it's always a learning process. And the fact I think you responded to it very well, actually, I think some people might have gone the other way and just full up yelled at like those type of people for not um, seeing that earlier, but you took it in a good way. And I think that's a good way that patients and doctors can communicate. So doctors understand that, yes, you do have all this knowledge, but then that doesn't, you know, exempt you from making mistakes or learning from them. So I think that's important. And even for us to know when we go into med school and further beyond that, we really need to take the time to listen to our patients, no matter how smart we think we are in that field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Because we all learn together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then could you tell us maybe like your best doctor experience or so oh my gosh now that's harder because I have so (laughs) many oh my goodness um ultimately I think what stands out for me for doctors that I guess if I could create a category (laughs) for what creates a good doctor experience for me is I so appreciate when a doctor can look beyond and beyond can mean so many things When my daughter had to, I was telling you a little bit earlier about my daughter having to go back in for emergency surgery when she was a baby, Mm -hmm. the team of doctors were there that day, but the regular, there was other regular staff that was not there. So normally for them, when there was a procedure, there was always somebody coming up about every hour, updating me from the OR to let me know what's going on. And these doctors, they cared so much. They, they would not accept failure as an option. And that doesn't mean that doctors can't fail or that if they try a million times that it's always going to work out. But I can tell you, I am beyond grateful that they didn't stop trying because they, the nurse came up to, from the OR to tell me, um, after her procedure, her second one, the emergency one. And she said to me, she said, Jenny, I am so sorry. We tried four times to get faith off the cardiac bypass machine, which is the machine that pumps blood for your heart while they basically have it open in your chest. Mm -hmm. And they're like, we can't get her body oxygenate. I'm so sorry. It doesn't look good. Mm -hmm. And I lost it. I was just a big mess. My brother had showed up right then, which was really such a God thing for me because he's like, I heard them say they're trying once more. He's like, we're going to pray. And so we did. But then, um, about 20 minutes later, we got a call from the OR and the doctor said, you know what, we're going to move her shunt to a different position. We think if we do that, then maybe it'll work. Well, they tried five times to get her off this bypass machine at this point. And the fifth time worked because they went back four times. They tried four and they still came up with a new idea. And that new idea is what made the fifth time successful. They didn't give up. So they saw beyond what logic was telling them. They saw beyond what reason was telling them. They saw beyond what any medical science would tell them. Her heart was so weak. They saw beyond what was there and they said, we're still trying. And so that stood out to me and that same team of doctors, they were just so incredible. I, again, you're at a specialty hospital. You're 
like we were states away from where we are, you know, and miles away, you know, whatever. We're always just far away from home. And my family had to go back to work. And so they had gone back home after her procedures. Well, her cardiologist, I'd be down there all by myself, young mom, you know, and I stayed at her bedside almost all the time. And um, her cardiologist would come into the cafeteria where I'd go eat lunch and he'd pull up a chair and he'd eat lunch with me. And we'd make small talk and he'd tell me about his family. He saw beyond, okay, it's, you know, not my job. This isn't, you know, my responsibility or let me send the social worker in to maybe see if she needs some support. He'd just stop during his lunch break and say hello. And then he'd go back to work, you know? And then one more example that I can think of, though I do have a million, but I'll end at this one. <laughs> um is when she had surgery right after um, her senior year of high school, uh, we were, rules are always changing. You never know. Um, systems within hospitals change. And I'm, I strongly believe that when a doctor's struggling or medical staff is struggling, it far more has to do with the way a system set up in a hospital than it does any of the individual people who are involved because the individual people who are involved mean well, they're working hard. They're trying their best that they can with the tools that they have, but systems often fail and you can't always work against or with the system, however you want to put that. But um, she had just lost her dad. I don't know if I mentioned that in the beginning, but her senior year, um, or just before her senior year in April, my mom had passed away. She was a huge support for us. And my husband passed away two months after that. And then a few, um, months after that faith needed her seventh open heart surgery. And so when they say it, when it rains, it pours, <laughs> that's what that year was like by far. And so, here we are, we're going down to this hospital. We don't have any of our normal support system. We had a support system. I had, you know, her grandma and a very close friend and, you know, other family who came to be with us, but my mom wasn't there. My husband wasn't there. Her, that means her grandma and her dad weren't there. And so she had to face all of this without them. Well, after her procedure, you know, they leave you sedated and on a ventilator for a couple of days. But when they finally wake you up and they get you moving, you have chest tubes coming out of your body. They're draining blood from around your heart cavity. You know, you're, you've got lines all through your neck and everywhere, but you still have to get up and you have to take a step with all of those things. You've got a Foley coming out of your, you know, collecting your urine. You know, there's just your, it takes this whole team of people just to get you out of bed. And it's the most painful step out of bed. And it's the most scary step out of bed because you've been there before for her. And you know, this is going to hurt, but I have to do it. I'm going to be really dizzy, but I have to do it. I don't know how my heart's going to respond, but I have to do it. So it's scary, but you don't have a choice. And so for her now, she's like, but I have to do it without my dad. He was the one who always made her feel confident and safe because he was big and strong. And so she didn't have to worry as somebody, they weren't going to, they were, they had the nurses know how to lift people, but in her mind, dad's going to keep me from falling. If I can't stand, he'll catch me. He's strong. And so she's like scared to do this. Well, the staff 
had this rule that only two people or the system had the rule that only two people could be in the ICU at once. And I knew with all of that going on for her emotionally, she was going to need more than that. And so when that one staff member made the like allowance for us to get the rest of her team, her support team back there for that moment, that allowance allowed her to successfully get up. It allowed her to trust her staff because they cared about her details and allowed her to be six. It just, it allowed her to feel safe and cared for and seen. So those are all a movie where um, I think it was called the good doctor, but I think there was like a patient and she, she kind of like bent the rules so that the patient would feel safe. And like, I think that like definitely helped the patient in the movie and it works out in person too. (laughs) (laughs) It does. I know um, after Faith had that, sorry, I'm like, I said, I only have one more and then here I (laughs) go. But after Faith had had that procedure, um, we went home, but then the part of the procedure failed. And so we ended up back down there um, six weeks later and she was so sick and her mitral valve had just basically like let go. And so she had fluid pooling all around her lungs. She couldn't lay down because she would kind of drown in her own fluid a little bit. And um, she couldn't really walk because her oxygen would just drop. And so they had to get her in for emergency surgery. And she was so scared. I mean, not only did we just go through this all six weeks before, but she had to do it again. And, um, and where the first one didn't work, it didn't like help her confidence, you know? And so the anesthesiologist saw her fear and he also must've seen that we were, I could always hold it together for her. Well, I'm telling you the minute she went behind, I was, a, I was a mess, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I could hold it together in the moment to get her through the process. But he must've seen that in me and he must've seen her need, but he said, you know what, mom? You know, he's like, they always call you mom. <laughs> it's good to learn names, but that's what they say. <laughs> don't take it personal, but it is good to learn names. Um, but he'd say, you know what, mom? He's like, I think she needs you to come back with her. And he gave me the paper booties and he gave me the the stuff. And he let me go back with her into the actual OR until they put the gas mask on to let her go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was seen beyond that was looking beyond the rules. I mean, I saw staff look at him like, you're going to let her go in the OR, you know, and it's like, she just needs, they need to go. They need this, you know? And to this day, Faith has him on speed dial. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, every time I go in, I'm requesting this anesthesiologist. (laughs) I mean, I feel like this is so inspirational listening to it. Like this is the type of doctor that I want to be when I grow up. I want to like, you know, I feel like it's so easy to, um, when you're going into the medical professional, you're kind of thinking, oh, I have, I'm going to be so stressed from med school. I'm going to have to learn so much, but then you kind of forget like the humanities aspect of the whole thing, which is the most important part and kind of all these beautiful experiences you have with patients. And yeah, that's why I think like, um, highlighting this in our podcast is equally as important as just learning the information about, oh, what is a heart? How does it function? Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, And then, I mean, you told us kind of your, in while you told us your best and worst experience, I feel like you kind of highlighted what you look for in a doctor in terms of that going beyond step. Um, Is there anything else that you just like value in a doctor 
or you um or qualities you've seen that you really like or um and opposingly what are some qualities that you think um doctors could improve on that you've seen um mm -hmm. throughout your experience yeah um one thing that i really really like about doctors uh that I find to that I tend to have the most rapport with is I like it when the doctor takes the time to sit down and explain everything to me. I think that in part, um, in a new generation full of patient experience that that art is getting lost a little bit. And I think that doctors, um, and I think that's okay. You know, I think it's good to check and ask with a patient, do they, do they want to know all the details or do they want to just have it be simple? Um, because each person is different. And so I think it's good when there's that open communication for me, I liked knowing the details. So if somebody comes in and says to me, Oh no, everything looks good. It's like, eh, what's the creatinine at? What's this at? What's that? What was this lab? Because those values are the details that I know, um, and guard over personally, the other things are going to get lost naturally. I mean, you know how it works. You played telephone probably when you were a little kid, right? And you say one thing to one person and it loses something and it keeps going down the line. We're human. That happens. But when you have one person at bedside the entire time, like share that information with them because they will be the gatekeeper, the key holder who will say, but wait, don't forget this. And it's not anybody's fault if they've forgotten something. It's it's just this person has it. And, you know, there's so many doctors. We have such an incredible team. So I feel very spoiled. <laughs> we always say, this, I mean, we always say we're Boston snobs, but, you know, with the <laughs> hospital down there, because they're just so incredible. And every experience we have with them, they're just remarkable team. But they they really, truly do listen and they don't take offense. If you say, Oh wait, don't forget this. They're like, Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's not like a, are you saying I forgot something? <laughs> so it just goes back to that, you know, team approach, communicating and really seeing like what this person sees or notices. I love that. Yeah. And then what are some things that, I mean, not, not to critique doctors or anything, but maybe something <laughs> that you think doctors could improve on that you've seen a lot that you didn't like? Um, well, unrelated to this daughter, <laughs> I had another daughter recently who, well, I mean, I have a daughter. I didn't have her recently. She's old now. <laughs> She's in college, <laughs> but she recently had a visit to an ER. And when we were there and everything was okay, you know, everything turned out just fine. But while we were there, because things were fine, um, I understand that, you know, the hospitals are short staffed. There's a million and one reasons they're feeling burned out as well, but people really have to take the time to have the patient experience. And the funny thing about that is, is it only takes like seven minutes, you know, as parents, we're not looking for, you know, hours of a person's time. We're looking for that take a breath, sit down, have a moment, explain what you're finding, why you think it means what it means and what your plan is and why. <laughs> so, because, you know, we had uh, the experience we had recently was, you know, this woman came in, she talked a mile a minute and she was so anxious to move forward and get out the door. 
being an advocate my whole life and a social worker, I was able to say, you know, oh, wait, hold on, wait, if you could just take a minute, I do have a question about this and this. And she was still rushing through that, but wait, you know, and I'd pull her back to the other piece of information I had, but it's really nice if I don't have to do that. I don't want to have to do that as a patient. I just want to have the few minutes to ask questions and not feel like I'm pulling somebody back into the, into the door. Yeah. Cause I definitely think that like, obviously like doctors are really knowledgeable and, um, and like, I think that like people should know what's going on with their body. And so like, yeah, it's, I think it's important that doctors educate um educate like their patients too yeah and give them authority because like I mean I feel like okay if you were tired and you had to do a surgery you wouldn't just like rush through the surgery just because you're tired right because you give that priority to that patient's life but in the same way I think that needs to be applicable to just communicate communication as well because it's equally as important as their literal job of just you know doing stuff but yeah yeah and it honestly saves time in the end you know if you can get it with anything right I mean that's how life works if you take the time to do it as my dad would say right the first time (laughs) (laughs) it saves you on the back end of having to go pick something up or I forgot this or this person's now calling me because they didn't get their question answered or okay and then how did like different patient doctor experiences affect your mental health and kind of like like the hope you had going into maybe like, um, maybe like different like surgeries. One thing that the doctors would always say that always gave me a lot of confidence and hope was when they would say just the little things, don't worry, we'll take care of her. It wasn't a promise that I'm going to make everything better, but it would make me feel like, okay, you care and you're going to take care of her, you know, that little extra like, I'll be with her. I will look out for this. Let me know if there's anything specific that you just really want me. Like, they're standing guard over your baby when you can't in the most critical moment of their life or death. You know, like you're in this like life and death moment. You're handing them over. And so for me, that was always like a key thing. Like when they said, don't worry will take care of her or what do you need during this process then I'd be like okay I'm not there but they are and they've got yeah. it wow yeah. yeah I feel like those like little words of affirmation really do matter they do yeah and then um I mean as like we want to be medical professionals and a lot of our listeners do as well so I feel like we've learned so much from you in terms of um how to be a good doctor, what to avoid, and just kind of learning more about um, the heart and stuff. But are there any other like closing advice that you have for anyone pursuing the field um, to be mindful of when dealing with patients? And um, also like an overall message you want to share with people in general about how this experience has changed your outlook in life in any way? I think that the big thing is, is that if you're going into the medical field, um, that, you know, there's, it's a noble profession and there are going to be a lot of people who need you. (laughs) So my first thought is, is make sure you have a support system as well, because it's, it is a job that you will take home with you. You know, you're going to think about your patients. You're going to care about your patients. You're going to celebrate both the wins and the losses with your patients and their families. And so 
when you look at that that way, it just makes it all that much more easier to see that you are part of the same team and you work together to accomplish the same goal. And I think that that can make for a really beautiful experience. Thank you so much. And I mean, I just want to thank you overall, because I feel like this discussion has really opened my eyes to see how much because you were just praising your team constantly. And that makes me realize like doctors do play a big role in how these surgeries turn out, not just physically, but also mentally for the patient and their surrounding family. And I don't know, I just felt like to cry so many times in between as well, because I was just like, wow, um, like hearing these stories of how inspiring um, doctors are mentally to their patients just makes me look at the field in a completely different aspect in an aspect of helping people in a in a different way almost I remember hearing the story one time I was like taking an uber to school and um the driver was asking me like what I wanted to do when I grew up and I was like I want to be a neurosurgeon and he was just kind of asking me my thoughts on it and I was like yeah I'm very passionate about it but the one thing that um makes me like very hesitant is the complication that comes with being a neurosurgeon because um most brain um diseases are deadly they're not, you you don't have a survival rate of over like five years and if you mess up it's bad right so there's just a lot of burden that comes with that and he was just kind of he said that one of his friends was a neurosurgeon and he was just sharing like all these various experiences that they've been that he's been through um sometimes it would be almost an impossible procedure that they somehow got through and that would just make his day for weeks and you know knowing that he could save that life sometimes it would be that there was an emergency surgery he was rushing um to the hospital and before he could even reach there the patient would die and he'd just have to like live with that grief so it's just like a very you know Mm -hmm. Like risky thing but I think at the end of the day knowing that you tried your best to help patients lives it's it's just an amazing job to live with so yeah definitely well I think that you two are just delightful and I love your your hearts and just your I mean your your go-getters for sure <laughs> you know yeah. and the fact that you're doing this to explore more and just learn more about it before you dive in and all of that. I just, I think you both make amazing doctors. So, you know, but you also be amazing at whatever you choose to do. So. Thank you. Um, Yeah. We learned so much from you and I, I feel like our listeners definitely have too. I'm glad. Yeah. Um, Okay. So now I, I think we like kind of covered up all the questions that we had. Um, do you have anything, any like last, last like words you want to put out to our listeners before we, we end the podcast? No, I think that's, I think you guys did an amazing job covering it. And, um, yeah, we'll definitely like for our listeners, we'll definitely put in, put in the links to like, maybe like all your books and your, um, your own podcast. Cause I don't, I'm like, I'm definitely interested in learning so much more about this. Yeah. So I guess that's all. Medics off the mic. mic. (laughs) 